The Going Viral podcast from HealthEd shares the latest information on COVID-19 from authoritative voices and leading experts. You can find all episodes at healthed.com.au or if you're a registered health professional, you can listen on the HealthEd app as well as access many educational resources to support your professional development and practice. HealthEd's face-to-face seminars are starting up again in 2022. And we hope that you will be able to join us for a day of high quality learning with a lineup of great speakers and important topics in women's and children's health. I'll be chairing a number of these events and I look forward to seeing you there. Register at healthed.com.au. Hello and welcome to Health Ads Going Viral. I am Dr. David Lim. It is Thursday, the 14th of April. Professor Christine McCartney will update health professionals on the latest developments in managing the COVID-19 pandemic here in Australia. Find out where we are up to in terms of vaccinating children, options for both vaccinations and boosters, and issues surrounding the infection itself. It's my pleasure to join you again today to give you an update on COVID-19, um, vaccines and new antiviral therapies. Um, my name is Christine McCartney from the National Centre for Immunisation Research and Surveillance. And I'd uh, like to begin by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the lands uh, on where we're all variously um, joining together and pay my respects to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as the First Nations people of the land. Um, I'd also encourage you to, to jump onto our website, ncirs.org.au. Um, there's a huge number of resources there related to COVID-19 and COVID-19 vaccines, and I'll show you a few of those today. And I'd like to um, also thank those who've helped me with the slides. I don't have any conflicts of interest. We don't accept pharmaceutical funding. Um, and what I'm gonna to talk to you about today is the current COVID epidemiology, both globally and in Australia. Um, what can we anticipate over winter? The, you know, the billion dollar question. Um, latest COVID vaccine developments and recommendations and touch on the antiviral therapies. So let's jump right into the epidemiology. And here we are um, just coming you know, out of the first quarter of, of 2022, um, over two years into the pandemic and definitely Australia's got cases. You all know that. Um, we, we all know that we're experiencing a fairly high number of cases per 100,000 here on the map. You can see um, we're well into this higher category globally of the Omicron variant. But what we're seeing is a disconnection. So we're seeing an uncoupling of cases as compared with serious outcomes. And I'll talk about this a bit more. So this is the latest update from WHO with data till the 3rd of April. And you can see that really the, the three prior um, epidemic waves throughout 2020, 2021, um, right up to the end of um, 2021, have been dwarfed in comparison uh, to the total number of cases, which really are due to the game changer of the Omicron variant. But look at the line on the, uh, you know, the single solitary blue line which has the number of deaths on the, on the right-hand axis. And you can see while there still are very sadly a large number of deaths occurring, there's so many more cases um, in comparison to deaths now than there were before. 
and you know there's really now a joining of those numbers or a, a, a shrinking of the gap between the numbers of deaths as compared with the numbers of cases. Now you know these figures are always impacted by detection systems, testing systems and of course there are many many more cases and many many more deaths attributed you know that are really caused by COVID than you'll see here um, but the good news for many countries who can be vaccinated and can have access to treatments is that we are really starting to impact upon serious outcomes from the disease. What about in Australia? Well, we have had Omicron and we've actually kind of having two waves, but what you can see in the top right hand graph here is the whole duration of the pandemic. And you're saying, well, hang on, we had, we had COVID before those blue bars, which are the number of cases in Australia in the past few months. Well, we did, but they're actually dwarfed. So you've got to zoom in and look at the tiny, tiny little bumps in blue lines when we look at the um, original uh, 2020 outbreaks and then, the, and then the Delta variant outbreak of 2021, we see that the number of Omicron cases is so much more and we see this double peak. Now the double peak is a little bit about BA2, the subvariant, which I'll mention in a minute, but it's also about how states and territories have opened up, um, events that have been going on, the level of mixing, et cetera, et cetera. Um, we can see that case numbers are highest in those who get about in the community. They're, they're uh, in the blue and yellow bars, male and female, and the peaks are really in the teens, the 20s, the 30s, um, in terms of the number of cases. These are people um, you know, who interact and engage a lot with each other. More than half of cases now, at least in the two states that I'm showing you on the bottom, New South Wales and Victoria, are being detected and recorded um, using the rapid antigen test, which of course is a big change. And again, many you know, milder cases probably not being reported at all. Here's a closer look at our largest metropolitan city in the country, Sydney. And you can see if you closely look at the bottom right hand corner, um, again, the, the trends in the number of cases, these are rolling seven day averages on this graph, so not the big peaks that you can see, but rolling seven day averages are important because they give you a bit more of a sense of a trend over time. And you can see, um, you know, those young people again being the top curves there, but they're starting to come down the number of cases reported. And, you know, this is possibly because um, we are really starting to come out of the epidemic peak in New South Wales. There's certainly some signs that New South Wales will be coming on the downside of that curve, even though it looks fairly flat here. Um, you can see that the rolling seven day averages for hospitalisations and for intensive care unit admissions, um, this is in the latest epidemiologic report, are also looking pretty steady, if anything, um, a little bit up. And remember that's because cases will go up first, then there's typically you know, a one to two week lag for hospitalisations and, and um, you know, sadly intensive care unit admissions to, to be occurring. Unfortunately, we continue to see COVID still at its greatest, um, uh, having its greatest impact in uh, those from low socioeconomic backgrounds, um, where housing, you know, for example, is more crowded um, and, uh, you know, access to other uh, treatments and so forth might be, might be, or, you know, care might be more limited. So in the lower socioeconomic areas. And this is a really big shout out to us to do more in those areas, particularly um, with preventative uh, you know, measures like vaccination and also, of course, with early access to treatment for any you know, GPs who are operating in those areas. Here's a, here's a graphic from Western Australia. They've got a really um, good dashboard now. 
and it reflects the Australian situation. So almost four and a half million recorded um, cases in Australia and globally almost half a billion. So incredibly sobering figures, particularly because they are underestimates. But you can see the numbers there from Western Australia too. So um, there are national reports, but uh, you know, depending on where you are, you might like to obviously also go into your own state report. Now, um, variants and other respiratory viruses. So this is the phylogenetic tree of the SARS-CoV-2 virus. So remember it started with just, you know, a virus that was in one or two people and then it's taken off around the world. And viruses are constantly evolving. So this tree, which is kind of like a bent over windswept bush really, um, on the top left hand corner, shows you how with each little dot over time heading to the right, how the virus has subtly changed its genome and then these variants have emerged. So in the blue you can see the delta, this is a sample of you know, across, uh, viruses from across the world submitted and characterised. Um, in the orange, in the light orange at the top, you can see Omicron, the BA1 subvariant, and the dark orange is the BA2 subvariant. So they actually came off fairly early as subvariants, but BA2 has been factoring in a bit more lately compared with BA1. And you can actually see that Omicron didn't arise from Delta. So what we've got to think about now, and there's still, you know, still some delta about, but it's really, you know, increasingly about BA2, at least in the countries that have submitted data here. Now, you can see also it's about BA2 when you look at the panel on the bottom over time, which shows that dark orange. And most parts of the world that are submitting uh, samples have, have now BA2. So, you know, we will see more variants. We're seeing, you know, we're seeing variants really all the time, but it's just whether they've got these concerning features um, and whether they start to dominate because they've got these concerning features. Um, what is Deltacron? You've heard a little bit about this. Uh, firstly, I wouldn't be concerned particularly about Deltacron, but Delta and Cron is a blending of the name. So essentially, um, there have been cases, uh, uh, no more than you know, um, a dozen or so in Australia that have been detected, where basically the, a single person has probably been infected with both the Delta virus and the Omicron virus at the same time. Bear in mind, we almost have no Delta anymore, but we'll get to that. They've been infected with Delta and Omicron at the same time. And those viruses have recombined their genetic material. So they actually form like a hybrid sort of virus that then goes on to replicate. Now, the key question you want to ask is, well, does that have better fitness? Is it going to replicate more readily? Is it going to spread more readily? Is it going to cause more severe disease? And that doesn't appear the case with the Delta Cron that's been detected in Australia. The Delta Cron that's been detected in other parts of the world has recombined differently, different sort of virus. So not too much to worry about there, but the variant tracking um, efforts are huge. And as I mentioned, this is data from a sample of viruses tested in New South Wales. Um, BA2 has now essentially replaced BA1 and does appear slightly more transmissible, not particularly more severe and certainly still is very responsive uh, to the extent, you know, that, or even perhaps a little better than BA1 was to um, protection from vaccination. So that's very important. Okay, what about influenza? Because I know that you're seeing patients with respiratory viruses other than SARS-CoV. So this shows you globally in the Northern Hemisphere, Southern Hemisphere, when the pandemic started, influenza practically stopped circulating. 
all of the shutdowns. We shut, we, we quarantined out influenza essentially in this, in this country for almost, well, for two years. But um, we will see cases again soon. We are due for a big flu year. Can I tell you if it's going to be 2022? No, I cannot. But can I tell you the best thing to prepare? Have as many people vaccinated as you possibly can. So you can see here, these are all the different peaks of notifications in the previous years. Look at the red line that was 2021. And you zoom in, you can see these, this tiny little trickle of activity, but it really never got a foothold, never took off. So we don't have any, you know, infection-derived immunity to influenza in the last couple of years. Last year, we didn't have such great vaccination rates. So I'll get to that in a second. You're seeing patients with not flu and not COVID, what have they got? Well, if you, and this is probably particularly in New South Wales, I think there's a tick up starting in some of the other states as well, but they have got other respiratory viruses. So here's some great data to the early, um, early stage of April from the New South Wales Epidemiological Report. This is one of the best tracking reports across the country. Um, and you can see bottom left-hand corner, human metanumovirus ticking up in that green line. Um, over on the right, adenovirus and parainfluenza virus ticking up. Um, you can see rhinovirus, common cold virus ticking up and RSV ticking up. And they've ticked up even more in the last uh, few weeks, I can tell you, as has influenza A. So we are starting to see the other respiratory viruses come out. Um, this might be a little bit different, say, to Western Australia or South Australia, Northern Territory. Um, couldn't see their data at this stage, but certainly on the southeast, um, we're starting to see these other respiratory viruses come up. So now, again, is the time for flu vaccine. Here's the data from um, 2020, when we had really high um, numbers of flu vaccines available to us and pretty high coverage, um, close to 50% in our young children, who remember are often the super spreaders for flu, not COVID. Um, but coverage dropped in 2021, more so in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, actually. So big shout out to those um, who work with our Indigenous communities um, to, to really encourage vaccination there. I know some people are fatigued about vaccines, but this is the time to do it. And as I mentioned, coverage is particularly falling in the young kids. I would really strongly encourage you to vaccinate young kids. There's some great resources on our website, sharing knowledge about immunisation, Sky, and that's really detailed information, but it's also got to provide a learning module there to talk with parents about why should your child have a flu vaccine. Lots of um, fact sheets and FAQs as well, not just for influenza, but are all updated for 2022 and some click-throughs to other things, um, you know, like the Atagi advice and so forth. Can flu and COVID vaccines be given on the same day? Yes, they can. Can they be given a few days apart? Yes, they can. Would you routinely schedule them on the same day? Oh, look, I, I, I wouldn't have any reservations in doing that if your patient's keen for that. Um, I think in general, if, you know, uh, they're saying, oh, I'm not so sure, you know, I want to have them on the same day or, you know, what about the side effects? So I'd probably separate them by a little bit. But don't miss an opportunity to get that patient vaccinated for both diseases. So it's a trade-off. There's been studies, um, a large study in The Lancet uh, with the different combinations of the COVID vaccines and actually different flu vaccines and slightly higher rate of systemic side effects, but no worse in general. And we're only talking here the proportion of people that might experience those sort of, you know, aches and pains, headache after vaccination. 
um, didn't really affect the immunogenicity of either the flu vaccines or the COVID vaccines to any significant extent. And then another study done um, by Novavax with their COVID vaccines, really similar findings. So you can counsel your patient, um, look, there's a slightly higher chance of you having a side effect, um, but it's perfectly acceptable to have them on the same day. If someone's just had a vaccine the day before, like a COVID vaccine, and they're not feeling great, I wouldn't you know, run and jab them with a flu vaccine necessarily, but you're probably not gonna do any harm if they really want it that day and it's the only day that they can get it. Okay, so what's happening with COVID vaccines? Well, um, almost two thirds of the world popu world's population has had one dose. That's um, over 11 billion doses. So this is not a new vaccine anymore. It's not experimental, 11 billion doses given. 13, over 13 million doses given every day, but sadly, um, not even yet 15% of people in low middle income countries that have had a vaccine. So a huge disparity, which we must continue to address. Australia's right up there with our coverage, and that is playing into how we are handling, relatively speaking, in terms of severe outcomes, Omicron. Now, why should I recommend a booster to my patient? They haven't had one yet. I know it's a recommendation, um, but they're not sure, I'm not sure. Well, you know, with Delta, we knew that boosters were a good idea, but Omicron has changed the game. The antibody levels needed to you know, protect against Omicron are that much higher because it's not a perfect match with the virus compared to the antibody. So we need higher levels of antibody to do that job. And that's what boosting gives you, is higher levels of antibody. Also stimulates your immune memory, T cells, everything sort of gets stronger, longer, bigger, better. And that's a good idea when we're talking about preventing severe disease, because that's what vaccines do best. So um, what you can see here, and I'll orient you, this is a graph against Delta, um, and you can see um, from the bottom up, you've got any infection, then symptomatic disease, and then severe disease. And on the left-hand side, you've got just the primary series. And on the right-hand side, you've got the booster. And then what are down the left-hand side is a whole series of effectiveness, observational, carefully crafted scientific studies that tell us the effectiveness. So this is not just one effectiveness study that you'll hear in the headline, someone goes, ooh, ooh. This is a whole analysis of all the effectiveness studies. And you can see for Delta that actually, um, whether it was severe disease or any infection, protection was very high with the primary series and then fantastic right up into the 90% mark with the booster. But Omicron has changed that. Now, before I show you the Omicron graphs, I wanted to tell you that Omicron, um, Delta, being infected with Delta or infected with Alpha or the ancestral strain doesn't even protect you that much against being infected with Omicron. So if you've got someone who says, oh, look, I was infected back in 21 with you know, Delta, I'm not going to have my booster because I'm, I'm really protected. You want them to still get boosted because Delta infection in the past doesn't cover you as well for Omicron. And we can see that from this South African study where they had a lot of infection prior, a lot of peaks. They had an increasing number of people um, who'd been infected in the past who were susceptible to reinfection. But those people actually got reinfected because they met Omicron, because it's got this evasion. That's the blue peak in the bottom right-hand corner. So coming back to the sort of graphs that I was showing you, let's have a look again. A number of studies down the side um, from different countries, really important that we get a good mix of vaccine effectiveness studies. 
you see AstraZeneca as a primary series and protection even against severe disease here is looking around 50% or less, not where we'd like it. Now boosting with an mRNA vaccine against Omicron brings your vaccine effectiveness strongly up to around sort of in the 80 to 90% mark. That's where we want to be. But it's still not going to be brilliant for infection. And we're living and breathing that every day here in Australia. So still in the bottom right-hand panel, around 50% protection from any infection. Remember, we can get infected with viruses and not even know about it. That's actually, you know, quite a nice thing because that boosts your immunity, but we can't predict who that will happen to and who it won't happen to. Every, you know, all people can still remain susceptible to severe disease. So that's why there's a strong booster recommendation. Let's get back up into the 90s against severe disease, particularly in our AstraZeneca recipients. It's the same for Pfizer, the same for Moderna, but they start off at a slightly better baseline. So here, against Omicron, left-hand side, primary series, you can see strongest protection against severe disease at the top and, you know, pretty, pretty average protection against infection. You boost and look where the top right-hand bars go. They go right over to stronger protection against serious disease. And even against any symptomatic disease, we're getting really good protection here. So this is multiple studies, multiple countries, very consistent, showing that sort of protection, very similar for Moderna. What about the duration of effectiveness? Well, what's important is that it's looking still pretty strong um, against severe disease. So we will see infection even if we're vaccinated. We know that because there's plenty of people who have been infected. They say usually, thank goodness I was vaccinated because it wasn't so great. Um, but really here again, we're seeing the booster in the top right hand corner with an mRNA booster, giving strong protection out to even three to less than six months against Omicron. And we, ha we can't go any further than that yet because we haven't had Omicron for that long. So we've just continued to track these sorts of things. Now, does the, you could ask the other question, you could say, well, does the fourth dose, now that some people are recommended a fourth dose, actually give you protection for very long? And Israel are, as always, out there first with that fourth dose, and they've just published this in the New England Journal, which again shows, and this is the fourth dose in 60-year-olds and above, around um, half of their 1.2 million eligible vaccinated, study up until early March, and you can see here the blue dots. So any infection, and they were you know, doing a lot of testing, any infection, um, the ratio of protection when you compare the fourth dose people to the third dose people, it went up for a little while, but then it's pretty much at the same level. But severe disease, the red dots, look at that, four times, three to four times better protection if you had the fourth dose compared to if you've had the third dose. Remembering this is in older people who are most at risk of severe disease. So I know where I'd, I'd want to be or my loved one to be. Uh, similar study from Hong Kong where vaccination rates unfortunately are not as high as, um, as you know, certainly in Australia. A 20 times higher risk of death among unvaccinated adults aged 60 plus. So seven out of 10 deaths were in unvaccinated older people. And, you know, Oh, what you can see on the right-hand side is a breakdown from this study just published in the past few days that actually shows that ratio of a higher risk of, um, of uh, death even continued uh, with people in their 30s. So unvaccinated people or people only receiving one dose of vaccine in their 30s 
had a higher risk of death. Seven and a half fold. So again, you know, death is less common if you're in your 30s, but it does occur and it'll occur more often if you're not vaccinated and not boosted. So um, does vaccine protect in children? Yes, it does. And there's been a couple of studies, there were some early preprints, not yet um, published and peer reviewed, that you know, showed some very, very low efficacy against infection, but now um, two strong studies against severe disease. And again, severe disease less common in, in children and in adolescents, but you know, how many parents really do want their child to be in hospital on oxygen with pneumonia? Not many, I'd say. And very safe vaccine. We've got basically here showing strong protection. This is a US um, case control study in 23 states. Very strong protection in the 12 to 15 year group, the 16 to 18 year group. And then down the bottom, you can see the five to 11 year group um, getting close to 75% protection against, um, against hospitalization. Now within those um, uh, bars, you can see then a greater breakdown for the 12 to 18 year olds. And if you're talking about the milder form of COVID in hospital, not quite as good protection. So again, we will not stop with our vaccines. We will not stop a lot of infection, but we will stop severe disease. Okay, so um, we know that coverage has is, is really sort of lagged, slowed, plateaued um, in five to 11 year olds. Um, there's an early burst out of the gate. Now families are back at school. They're probably quite busy. Some of the, their children have had COVID. Um, but there are a number of strategies to um, take on board to discuss with parents why it's still a good idea to get their child vaccinated. Remember, we're looking for that hybrid, longer, stronger immunity, and we're knowing that we can boost them, even after their Omicron infection, we can boost them uh, to be, have a broader protection by using the current vaccines. So we're not throwing the current vaccines out. They're not changing just yet either. Um, but it's really important, I think, to talk with parents this year about for their child, COVID vaccine and flu vaccine. Also on our website at ncrs.org.au is a COVID-19 vaccine decision aid. So this is um, for five to 15 years and then there's a separate one for 16 years and above. So this is a tool that patients themselves can use. They can click through a series of questions to support their decision making on whether to have a vaccine or not, or for their child whether to have a vaccine. Contains a lot of good information that it might be hard um, in a busy session like you have to, to um, you know, share with patients but I'd, I'd definitely think about directing some of your patients with a lot of complex questions to, to this decision aid. Okay, so how many doses for my patient? I know it's getting tricky and we definitely hear this feedback, but it is really tailored to use doses in a way that gives the best benefit over risk and, you know, but isn't sort of just throwing out vaccines there where we don't expect them to really um, do a lot. So two doses in the five to 15 year olds, healthy without you know, significant immunocompromise, Pfizer or Moderna, eight weeks spacing preferred just to strengthen that immunity a little bit after the second dose. And also because it will slightly, we think, reduce the very rare risk of what is usually mild in terms of the heart inflammation um, side effect. Uh, reduce, that should say reduce very rare myocarditis. Three doses, the two primary doses plus the booster are for, is for everyone 16 years and above. Um, again, except for the severely immunocompromised and those who are going to get a fourth or fifth dose. Three months after the second primary dose for the booster, that's because we need that on board for Omicron. 
and Pfizer or Moderna preferred. Novavax, if you can't have either of those, AstraZeneca is pretty much the least preferred, um, but it's still an acceptable choice if your patient would only like that. Um, and then four doses, so two primary doses plus two boosters for those 65 years and above. This is a relatively new recommendation. Aged or disability uh, care uh, facility residents, and Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people 50 years and over. And then who is actually eligible for five doses are the severely immunocompromised. And that is from 16 years and above. And that's post BMT, organ transplant or some other therapies. I'll show you that in a little bit of a moment. I might've missed out, I think in this graph showing you um, the extra dose uh, for the severely immunocompromised young. So don't forget about that as well. Uh, but let's talk about the, this um, gap in a little moment. Here's the list of that severely immunocompromised category. There's a good guideline on this and it can, you know, just steps you through those patients and the types of medications who should be considered in that severe immunocompromised. If you're uncertain here, you've got any doubt, um, check in if the patient's already seen their, their usual, you know, specialist provider because they will really know about um, the level of immunocompromise they have. Now, when to give a vaccine dose after infection? I think this is a pretty common question because quite a few people have been infected. And the current ATAGI advice, which may in the coming week or two be finessed a little bit, but it's not going to change dramatically, is if you've had the primary series and you've recovered, you can vaccinate any time afterwards. But think about it, you do get a little bit of a boost. And now most people who've just had the primary series and just been infected will have had Omicron. So you can wait up to four months. Early on when we had people infected with Delta and they'd only had the primary series, we wanted to boost them as soon as we could because they're infected with Delta. Now it's more likely that they're infected with Omicron. I'd wait a little bit more out to that three month, four month period. What about if I've had my first booster my patients heard my fir their first booster and then they've been infected after the first booster. Well, the recommendation here is to wait around four months. Three, four months is probably much of a muchness, but certainly wait till around four months or you know, not, probably not much longer because particularly if they're recommended for the fourth booster, they are someone who's at highest risk. Sorry, fourth dose or second booster, they are someone who's at highest risk. So they're the older, the older person. Um, most likely. And again, this strengthens our hybrid immunity. We do not and cannot predict exactly what's going to happen in winter, but this gets the protection on board beforehand. Uh, safety continues to be reassuring for the booster doses. Um, in young people, uh, the rate of myocarditis looks, you know, lower than the second dose in general, um, certainly not higher. It's still an, an uncommon side effect and most people recover, but it's certainly something to be aware of, um, particularly in the under 30s. This is a new study from Japan. It's consistent with studies and data from Australia and a number of other countries showing that it's really more focused on males after the second dose um, and particularly those under, under 30 and in their teens. Um, not so much in the young children. We're not seeing much myocarditis in the five to 11 year olds. That's really important, I think, to know for your patients. Um, including after the second dose, which has been given out in the US, the, the rate of myocarditis after the second dose in five to 11 year olds um, looks considerably lower than it does for teens and, and under uh, 30 year olds. Okay, so uh, a 
just a few days ago, Atagi uh, mentioned that uh, there would be no booster shot for 12 to 15 year olds at this stage. The vaccine um, of Pfizer is recommended in this age group, but Atagi is not recommending that 12 to 15 year olds do receive a booster at this stage. Remember what we've talked about. Severe disease from Omicron is very rare in younger teens who've received two primary doses. So if they haven't got the two primary doses, definitely get those on board. But very rare to have severe disease if you've had those. Most hospitalised teens are unvaccinated or have only had one dose. A boost to increase the level and duration of protection against infection alone is only going to be fairly short-lived. I've showed you that data. Um, and there are already moderately high levels of Omicron infection in this age group. And we will actually be looking at what true infection levels are or, or a better sense of what infection levels are through doing some sero-surveys in adult blood donors. The results are just about to come out. And then similarly, um, in children and teens, there's a big sero-survey. This is measuring antibody to the nuclear captured part of the virus, which is an indication of recent um, infection. So we'll get a better sense of that. So that's where the recommendation stands for 12 to 15 year olds at this stage. Okay, so quickly through the new oral antiviral therapies for SARS-CoV-2 infection. And there's a lot of information on this. I'm going to go very fast, but I would highly recommend that you jump into the Australian Government Department of Health website on this. It's got clicks then into your own state or territory. And a number of states and territories now have information related to pathways to um, accessing or prescribing you know, these medications for patients and uh, you know, noting that they're being added to the PBS, but importantly, there's a lot of really good guidance um, on the different websites. So uh, I'm going to focus on some information, particularly from New South Wales. On the left, you can see a table from the ACI um, in New South Wales, and it talks about the therapy. So the top two are the monoclonal antibodies, and they appear to have reduced um, uh, effectiveness against Omicron. Similar to what we've talked about, um, this mismatch between antibody um, and the virus itself means that they're less um, likely to be effective. So the following two, molnupiravir and then um, Paxlovid, which is a combination uh, antiviral, are really where we're, where we're looking to target um, patients who are just now infected. And you can see there's um, a risk checklist or a risk um, uh, matrix that's been put out by the COVID Living Guidelines, which is another good resource if you're unsure about where your patient might fall on the list. So here's the um, Commonwealth website for Paxlovid um, and for Legevrio, which is um, Molnupiravir, the trade name for Molnupiravir. And you can see this click-in area for, for the different states and territories. Important to recognise, um, as per the Australian Department of Health website, that they have provided um, molnupiravir to some of the aged care facilities, I think a number of aged care facilities. And so if you're thinking about residents that you care for in those facilities, uh, check in in respect of access to molnupiravir. Okay, so um, this is a model of care put out by the um, New South Wales ACI um, for these antivirals. In essence, if you have a high risk patient, they're within five days of confirmed diagnosis of SARS-CoV-2, um, you know, they've been infected, they're within the first five days, then they are potentially eligible for these medications. And you can see here for molnupiravir, 
or um, I'm going to say Niram Trelevir, I can't, I can't get that word out very well, um, plus Ritonavir, um, you know, who's, who's eligible. Now, um, for Nermatrelevir, which I always have trouble saying, and Ritonavir, easiest called as Paxlovid, it's really key to know, um, firstly, that the, so they're antivirals, so the mechanism is different. So um, what we have here is a protease inhibitor um, with another drug to boost it. And there are a lot of potential drug allergies for Paxlovid. So this is probably the single biggest thing to know. And it's very critical that you go through the checklist with your patients to see what medications they're on, whether they'll be eligible or not. But you can get help from a pharmacist. And I would strongly encourage that. Uh, depending on where you are. The other uh, contraindications or relative contraindications um, can include significant renal or hepatic impairment. So we're checking the guidance about those. Um, and there are, um, uh, you know, a number of other precautions to think about. So the timing, because these are antivirals, what you want to try and do is interrupt the viral cycle, the viral replication cycle as early as you can. Oral medications taken for five days, twice a day, but it's about identifying your patient and getting onto this early. Don't delay out to you know five days. You certainly shouldn't be prescribing you know um, into the second week. What you want to do is get your patient, your high risk patient, started on these early. Um, for Legevrio or Molnupiravir, there aren't the there isn't the issue with drug interactions nearly as much, and you can understand then why that's been the, the medication that's been distributed to the aged care facilities, because less of an impact um, uh, in terms of potential drug interactions. Um, but there is a need uh, to practice birth control if you're of childbearing age because of a potential for teratogenicity. Um, so this is an, another um, thing to be aware of with molnupiravir, and again, um, a different number of tablets, but two times a day, five days, start within the first five days. There appears to be a difference in, in efficacy between the two medications. Paxlovid does appear to be somewhat superior compared to molnupiravir, but the um, drugs haven't been compared in head-to-head -head trials. Will they both work against Omicron? It appears highly likely that they will, because they're actually about inhibiting the virus machinery you know, not delivering an antibody to block, to block the virus itself. So that's the good news in respect to both these medications. Here's the New South Wales guidance that I meant, uh, talked about, um, very easy to find on the website. And there's a whole, you know, um, entry uh, information sheet there for your patients. You can step through and click into the various clinical guidelines. It's actually very, very nice. And for those um, living by local health districts, um, there's actually a contact email for the pharmacist in your local health district who can help step you through whether this is right for your patient or not. And then there's even a consent form. Queensland similarly have um, a form to fill out for access and they have uh, guidance on who would be eligible and then who would be really highly prioritised. So what I would say is that whilst these might be coming on the PBS, I think it's really important that you access and utilise um, the available information for these medications, given they are so new and certainly um, a little bit challenging. I'm probably over time now, but I'm going to talk to you briefly about what the future holds. And um, this is a slide from um, Nick Golding, who uh, has modelled what the predicted waning in vaccine efficacy might be. Um, 
the reason I really like this slide is because it, it is able to give you a sense, me a sense, all of us a sense. It's modelled, but it's able to give us a sense of how efficacy varies depending on who you are, where you are. So if you start from the bottom up and you think, well, you know, two doses of AstraZeneca, efficacy is started off pretty good, but it does wane, but it's really um, pretty low against acquiring the infection, transmitting the infection, getting symptoms. Um, you go up and then you've got Pfizer, two doses, better, but still not great um, against, you know, those sort of symptoms. This is against Omicron, of course. Um, then the mRNA booster, you're actually starting to get into pretty healthy territory in terms of that efficacy, particularly against death, hospitalisation, symptomatic disease. And once you start um, actually to get in the territory of Omicron infection, and then you ensure that you've had your booster doses, you're actually really um, getting to a level of stronger and better protection. And this is part of the rationale, part of the thinking about why we need to deliver vaccine doses to people at a reasonable interval after they've had infection. So even if they've had infection, complete the vaccine series. Okay, so what will the next virus look like though? Will it be Omicron again? And I think it possibly will. I mean, I think it's most likely that we'll have a second peak in Omicron in those who haven't yet been infected, BA2 or BA1. We don't really, really know. It's also possible that we'll get, uh, you know, a more drifted new variant. The UK have divided this into different scenarios. They've said four scenarios, uh, relatively small resurgence um, in their winter of 22, 23, seasonal waves comparable to the size and severity of Omicron, emergence of a new vaccine uh, variant of concern in a large wave um, that does cause severe disease or a very, very large wave. Now, I know you're groaning right now, I certainly am. You know, none of us want three or four. We can't be sure, but I think what we can be sure is that we're going to continue to have epidemic um, peaks. And that's why, um, you know, continuing to deliver um, all the sorts of strategies that we've been using in terms of new therapies, boosts in vaccination are really, really important. This is a slide um, uh, from, uh, an excellent presentation that was given to the FDA just a few days ago. And it's a graphic representation of the rate of change in the amino acid sequences of SARS-CoV-2. So if you look in the top left-hand panel, you follow the blue. Early on in the pandemic, that rate of change was looking kind of like the rate of change of influenza viruses, A, B, and oh, certainly the two A, A viruses. But then we move up and we've seen what happened with Delta, and then off the charts in terms of rate of change is Omicron. So Omicron has actually told us that this virus can change significantly. It may not do it again in that way, but the rate of change within SARS-CoV-2, which started to be fairly slow, has stepped up. That tells us to think about whether another event like this could occur. And Modelling has been done. This is just like guesswork in many ways, and no offence to the researchers because I think it's very valuable to say what would be the likelihood of another big change like Omicron was compared, compared with you know, Delta and the earlier variants. Well, it's possible. And what that turned out to be in this presentation, at least, was a crude prediction that there's a 70% chance that there would be no event like this in the next 12 months. 
but there's a 20% chance that there could be one event like this in the next 12 months. So we can't bet, we've got to be prepared and this is all about being prepared and it is about learning to use antiviral therapies, getting vaccine boosting on board, but also not burning away and just giving everybody a vaccine now when we're not in the context of knowing when and what you know, the next variant might look like. So uh, he's put down a couple of scenarios there. We really can't be sure, but being prepared is the key. So I'd like to close and thank you for listening to this. Thank you for uh, you know, sticking with me in this long talk. Um, hopefully you've been understand, able to understand the overview of um, changing respiratory virus epidemiology. The new booster recommendations, they're more selective at this stage. That could change if the epidemiology changes. Really encourage your patients to be up to date with recommended COVID vaccines, even if they've been infected. A gap three to four months afterwards is going to be a good sweet spot for them to um, then come back for their next dose. Let's try to deliver record numbers of influenza vaccine um, before we get into the winter for 2022 because we have low immunity to influenza. We don't know if it's going to be a big year and it could well be. Um, and be aware that you're going to see other respiratory viral infections in your patients. Again, you know, we haven't been boosted. We want to be really virus safe, not just COVID safe, but virus safe as much as we can. Uh, we've got new oral antivirals to, to learn more about and start to use in our high-risk patients, um, not yet hospitalised, not yet on, on oxygen, um, but before they get sick, use these therapies. And, um, you know, let's continue uh, to hope that living with COVID um, is something that we can do bigger, better, stronger, because, um, because we are getting there, um, but let's be prepared for the winter of 2022. Thanks very much. Just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for the next webcast where you can always catch a high quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free, you get CPD points, and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthad.com.au. You can claim RACGP CPD points for listening to this podcast using the self-claim option. Log into your account on the RACGP website, go to the CPD section and click on self-claim.